Thank you very much, Wilma, for that. Um, yes, I'm sure you did wonder, to begin with, why you were here, but uh, it's the second half of my life. It is the, um, the Smeagol side, not the Gollum side, in which, uh, where I work for the English faculty and lecture there on early medieval, but also on Tolkien as well, and have published on him. Um, the reason for being invited, and thanks to Wilma for inviting me to this, this is my first talk in this um, quite superb building. I mean, I think... When Oxford does things right, it really does things right, and the Western is uh, an absolute jewel in the crown. The reason for me uh, talking here is because on display in the S.T. Lee room, no relation, unfortunately, <laughs> um, is Tolkien's uh, illustrated dust jacket for the first edition of The Hobbit um, in 1937. It's interesting to note it's displayed in an exhibition entitled Marks of Genius. <coughs> and in this very short talk, what I hope to give is a glimpse of why I think Professor Tolkien deserves the term genius and to be in such august company. Um, and I'm going to use the writing or the rewriting of The Hobbit um, in the real world and in Middle-earth as uh, an example of this. I should say that if you are a Tolkien reader or a Tolkien scholar, um, as a footnote, I do not use the term Tolkien fan. That is a disparaging term used by some of my colleagues in English literature. You can be a reader or scholar of Jane Austen, you have to be a fan of Tolkien. I think that's nonsense. But if you're in that category, a lot of what I'm going to say, and probably most of it, is not going to be new to you, so I'm, there's a <coughs> disappointment there. However, I've got a few nuggets I'll drop in for people like yourselves just along the way, if you are concerned. Um, but before I go on, it's just worth reminding ourselves a bit of the uh, details of Professor Tolkien's life. And just to note, John Garth is in the audience. So if you have any questions about Tolkien's life, who has written a bio, one of the great biographies um, of Tolkien in his early years, you can ask him. Um, he was born in 1892 in Bloemfontein and died in 1973. He began his university studies at Oxford, attending Exeter College just before the outbreak of World War I, and eventually specialising in medieval English language and literature, uh, particularly the Germanic legend and legends and literatures and, uh, and language, which is where I really uh, came in. He saw active service in the war on the Somme, was invalided home, employed briefly on the OED, then took up a position at Leeds University before returning to Oxford in 25 as the Rawlinson and Bosworth Professor of Anglo-Saxon, and in 1945 the Merton Professor of English Language and Literature, retiring in 1959 and his final year spent living in Oxford and on the south coast in Bournemouth. Uh, and I, I think it's worth just putting that up because a lot of people, when they first, they've read Tolkien, they come to it or a talk like this, they didn't realise that he actually had a very serious and very learned academic background. Um, when I mention this, I always like to bring up the quote from Humphrey Carpenter's um, biography, which I think is just lovely. It was the ordinary, unremarkable life led by countless other scholars, a life of academic brilliance, certainly, but only in a very narrow professional field that is really of little interest to laymen, which usually at that point I harumph in a John Humphreys type of way, but we'll move on. And that would be that, apart from the strange fact that during these years when nothing happened, he wrote two books which have become world bestsellers, books that have captured the imagination and influenced the thinking of several million readers. Um, and we can talk at some point about the impact of Tolkien later on. But the focus of today's lecture is on one of the two books, the first of the two books, namely The Hobbit. Um, we are quite fortunate to actually have an interview with Tolkien 
um, from 1968, which I'm going to show you a clip on. And really, it talks about the, the, the extract I'm going to show is the writing of this line, or this, these opening lines to the book. Probably the most famous, or one of the most famous openings, certainly to a children's book, in The Hole in the Ground, there lived a hobbit, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole, etc. And you can immediately see you're in the, in the world of children's literature by words like oozy and uh, dirty and filled with ends of worms and so on. And it's quite wonderful. So the clip I'm going to show you, as I said, is from 1968, a BBC documentary. And it's just Tolkien uh, recounting how he wrote down those, uh, that first opening sentence. The actual beginning, though, it's not really going to get you, but actual flashpoint, because I remember very clearly. I mean, I took, um, I still see the corner of it in my house in the corner of the Marking school examinations and sometimes is an enormous, um, very laborious and unfortunately wasn't boring. <laughs> so I remember picking up the paper and actually find nearly an extra mark or an extra five marks if you one page and this particular paper was left blank. Nothing to read. So I scribbled on it, I can't remember why. In a hole in the ground, the wind of hobby. I think that was eventually published in 1937. Um, now, uh, for those of you who uh, were at the Merton event in November, um, the 1968 edition on our, on our podcast university, there's a Q&A session with the director, Leslie McGahey, which I, which I ran. And the nuggets which I'm going to drop in is because recently, over the past few months, we've discovered offcuts from that interview, about an hour and a half of interview with Professor Tolkien, which never has seen the light of day. So I'll, I'll say a few words from those as I go through. But there he was, sitting in his house in Northmore Road, which is to the north of the city, marking papers, when suddenly he had this flash of inspiration and wrote down the opening sentence. And there it pretty much sat and stared at it, and he stared at it and wondered why. Um, many scholars have discussed the details of this event um, and poured over the evidence for every clue to try and date roughly when it could have taken place. And if you want to read about this, the most comprehensive study is by John Ratliffe, uh, his superb History of the Hobbit, and he places it all around the summer of 1930. And what happens then appears to be that Tolkien began to collect together around this sentence a set of tales, some of which were already floating in his head for his children, centering on this hobbit Bilbo Baggins and the quest he undertakes with a band of dwarves to find the lost treasure guarded by a dragon. But in some ways, though, that is not the real beginning, um, as he indicates or hints there in the interview. We know that at a very early age, uh, inspired by Andrew Lang's Red Fairy book, um, the young Ronald wrote his first dragon story. By the 1910s at least, Tolkien had begun to piece together his mythology, starting with a few scraps, a few poems, what was to become the Book of Lost Tales and eventually the Silmarillion. And again, I'd point to John Garth's book on Tolkien and the Great War because that will give you a very detailed analysis of that. And at the time of writing, Tolkien had all of this scribbled down in his head, the so-called 1930 Silmarillion was complete. But at this point, though, Humphrey Carpenter, uh, the biography I already mentioned, suggests that Tolkien's writing was taking two different paths. He had his mythology, and then he had his children's story, and The Hobbit fits into the latter. Um, but that The Hobbit began to provide him an opportunity to expose his mythology into a, a narrative, as we shall see. Um, so this, I'm going to show you a second clip now, and this is with uh, Christopher Tolkien. It's not from the 1968 film, uh, it's from a later film. And he's going to just say a few words about how the two things began to collide. And at that stage, The Hobbit had no connection with 
In fact, he said in the letter that he wrote in 1964, he said, by the time The Hobbit appeared in 1937, this, the Silver was in coherent form. The Hobbit was not intended to have anything to do with it. I had the habit when my children were still young of inventing and telling orally, sometimes of writing down children's stories in inverted commas for their private amusement. The Hobbit was intended to be one of them. It had no necessary connection with the mythology that it used this area. But naturally became attracted towards this dominant construction in my mind, causing the tale to become larger and more heroic as it proceeded. Even so, it could really stand quite apart. So they began to draw together. This mythology which he had begun to sort of create um, was attracted or attracted the story of the Hobbit to him. And so if we start looking at the dates again, 1930, as I said, he scribbled down the opening sentence. By 1933, he appears to have completed the first draft. Um, and by the, all this process of writing, things change. Um, the, the original name for the dwarf leader was not Thorin, for example. But the version finally completed by 1933, what we call the home manuscript, was there. And as Tolkien describes it, it wandered. He started to lend it to people and they started to read it. Now we're not again entirely certain on the dates, but we certainly think C.S. Lewis had read it in February 1933. And in um, one of the offcuts which I've seen, he certainly remarked that he'd lent it to the uh, Reverend Mother of the local convent who read it while she was suffering from influenza. Um, eventually it passed to Elaine Griffiths, uh, a scholar in her own right. She was studying under Tolkien and later became the chair of the Faculty of English. Um, and she had a copy in her possession when she was visited by Susan Dagnall of Allen and Unwin Publishers, who uh, asked uh, Elaine for some work which was not forthcoming, and in a, perhaps a flurry uh, gave her the manuscript of The Hobbit, and the rest kind of is, in, is history. Um, but it is certainly true that there's a lot of ifs and buts about the publication of The Hobbit, that if Elaine had not had it when Susan Dagnall came and had not remembered or pointed her toward towards Tolkien's manuscripts, we may not be sitting here today. Um, and indeed, Tolkien again said that um, in, in one of the offcuts, he'd never ever imagined it would be published. He'd never thought of having it published when he wrote it. So that's quite important. He sent the manuscript to Alan and Unwin, who solicited reviews from it, the um, most famous being from uh, Rainer Unwin. Um, I don't know if you can read this. Uh, he was age 10 at the time and he stated it should appeal to all children aged between, between the ages of five and nine. So I don't know where that places you, if you still enjoy <laughs> the Tolkien or The Hobbit. Um, it was published and advertised in the 37th Summer Anthology, and then in 1937 with a second print running in uh, at Christmas time. And the first edition ran to about 17,000 copies worldwide, and critically it went well, um, unlike perhaps The Lord of the Rings, you could say. Um, a bit subdued, although C.S. Lewis waxed lyrical, as one would expect of C.S. Lewis on one of his works by Tolkien. Um, and even the people who were writing unfavourable things about it said, well, pretty much, you probably will like it if you like that kind of thing. Um, the Hobbit sold so well, though, of course, that um, the publishers asked Tolkien for a second Hobbit, uh, which was never his intention, of course, and that's when he started to write The Lord of the Rings. And this is where it probably becomes interesting in terms of like, we've already touched on the perilous quest that it may never have got published in the first place. Um, and particularly when we think about the composition process of the story. 
The problem was that when Tolkien starts to write The Lord of the Rings, and it is a long process, um, I think I've got the dates coming up here, um, his thoughts about his mythology and how the narrative can sit on it begin to change. So he has to redraft The Hobbit, rewrites it in 1944, as midway through his uh, great work, The Lord of the Rings, uh, which he eventually sends to the publishers in 1947. Um, and he changed exactly five pages of typesetting just to make it easier for them to switch out the five and put in another five, which is very kind of him. And this was published as the second edition of The Hobbit in 1951, which is the text most people are familiar with. Um, and for those of you who were here earlier, I was playing, he was reading from the uh, Riddles in the Dark chapter from 1952, which was actually from the 1951 edition, not the 1937 edition, which you can see the dust jacket in the exhibition and so on. Um, in the process of that, Tolkien thought he'd made the book better in motive and narrative, but he also set out to do a few things, like he, there were some things in the original story which were just inaccurate, some misprints and so on, things that were anachronistic, and he changes. But most importantly, uh, sorry, he also changes um, the narrator's voice. If you've read The Hobbit, you may find it grating. There's a lot of these sort of, I'll tell you this and I'll tell you that. And Tolkien himself remarked in 1967, the Hobbit was written in what I should now regard as bad style, as if one were talking to children. There's nothing my children loathed more. All this I won't tell you anymore, you think about it stuff. And he begins to try and tone that down a bit for the 1951. But the most important change, or changes for the purpose of this talk, is that he had to bring the book into line with what was now in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and there's a couple of minor examples about some, some geography uh, which he had to sort of tidy up. Um, but the most important thing centres on this little chap, um, Gollum. Um, the chapter is Riddles in the Dark. It falls roughly in the middle of the book, um, so it's the kernel of the book. Uh, you may recall that in the story, Bilbo, uh, separated from the dwarves in the, in the Misty Mountains, finds his way to a deep cavern with a lake. Having previously by chance found a ring, the lake is the lair of Gollum, and the two engage in the famous riddling competition. If Bilbo wins, Gollum will show him the way out, and if Gollum wins, he gets to eat Bilbo, probably the one of most one-sided competitions <laughs> in literature. Um, the text actually notes that this was a turning point in his career, Bilbo's career, and indeed this is true, because this is really the first time where he's properly alone and has to make decisions for himself and uh, solve or get his way out of trouble, and his Tukish side, if you know the story, takes over from here. And after that, the rest of the book becomes slightly more adult, um, Bilbo becomes the leader of, of the uh, expedition, um, so it's a turning point in many ways, but particularly for Middle-earth with the discovery of the ring. But what we know, uh, well, what I would tell you, is that the readers in 1937, who picked up the first edition of The Hobbit, um, had a very different experience from the people who picked up the 1951 um, edition. Gollum was a very different creature, and the scene plays very differently. And this is because, as I've said, in the intervening years, Tolkien's <coughs> written The Lord of the Rings, and by then his ideas have changed slightly or grown, particularly around the ring itself. Um, and also around Gollum. Gollum's a fairly one-dimensional character in the 1937 uh, edition, uh, but by The Lord of the Rings, as, as Tolkien remarks, uh, he's become a very interesting and complex character, and is the, the quote he says is an example of corruption, which is not there in the, in the first book. Uh, for example, in 1937, there's no indication that Gollum uh, is a hobbit, uh, and the narrator states he doesn't really know where he came from. 
Uh, more importantly, the ring is very different. There's no linking of the ring to the necromancer, this shadowy figure who we later find out is Sauron in the book. And the statements such as it was a ring of power and the master who ruled the rings all come in in 1951. Um, crucially, though, we come back to the prize for the competition. If Gollum in 1937 wins, he still gets to eat Bilbo, so that's fine, that's, that's, that's absolutely jolly. But if Bilbo wins, then Gollum will give him a present, namely the ring. And furthermore, when Bilbo does win, Gollum's very apologetic, terribly sorry, but I've lost the ring, so, um, and the two part quite amicably. Now, this clearly wouldn't work with the Gollum of the Lord of the Rings and his precious. In particularly, he would never have given the ring away or offered to give it away. Um, and at first, when Tolkien started writing The Lord of the Rings, he began to play with how he could sort of like change this around. How could he make the two books sit? He toyed with the idea of Gollum still willing to give away the ring, but as an act of bitterness, this is a curse. I'm going to put you the burden of you on that, and you can find that in Return of the Shadow. But this just doesn't work, because it still requires Gollum to get up out of the Misty Mountains and go for a little wander with his little knapsack on a stick, merrily by Dol Guldor to be grabbed by Sauron and his minions to then reveal the name of Baggins for Sauron to release the Nazgul to go to the Shire and chase Bilbo and Frodo out of the Shire and we start the concert again. It just doesn't work. So he uh, Cholkin chose a new tack. Gollum was to go in search for his ring, which is what we expect and what we find in the later book, and be captured and be tortured and say Baggins, etc. But for him to go in search of the ring, unless he's had a complete change of mind, he wouldn't have wanted to give the ring away in the first place. So the demands of the bigger book, The Lord of the Rings, win through. Uh, and in 1951, we get the sort of changed Gollum, and The Hobbit is, is changed to adapt to the uh, story in The Lord of the Rings. In this revised edition, we also get a better insight about Bilbo, um, he now has a chance to kill Gollum in the 1951 edition because if you remember the scene, he, there is an opportunity where he could kill Bilbo. Um, but there's this wonderful quote, a sudden understanding, a pity mixed with horror welled up in Bilbo's heart, a glimpse of endless unmarked days without light or hope of betterment, hard stone, cold fish, sneaking and whispering, which is why pity takes over Bilbo and he doesn't kill Gollum, which was to have enormous consequences, as you know, throughout Lord of the Rings, and is occasionally referred to by Gandalf um, or Sam and Frodo mm -hmm. later on. But this all leaves, or left, Tolkien with a slight problem, and this is where I would say the genius steps in. Well, you may think it's a fudge, and I think it's incredibly clever, so I'm going to put it down as a genius. It's still possible in the real world, I have to, I'm flipping back and forth here, but we, we, we'll get there, um, that you could go along to a bookshop, and buy the 1937 edition. And if you have the 1937 edition first, can I buy it off you? It's <laughs> worth a fortune. But anyway, and you've only read that one. So then you read The Lord of the Rings, you think, hang on, this doesn't make sense. Because in the real world, there were two versions of the story out there. So what could Tolkien do about it? Well, most writers would have said, well, so what? I rewrote the book, I rewrote the story, and good luck to you. But Tolkien is not like that. He will try and pin down or iron out every anomaly that he could find. And he constantly does this again and again and again. And the way he gets out of this is, uh, is actually explained in the beginning of The Lord of the Rings, uh, in the uh, section on the prologue of the finding of the ring. And he recounts that the later version of the finding of the ring, the one that's in the 1951 edition in the real world, 
Uh, it's a curious fact that this is not the story as Bilbo first told it to his companions, namely the dwarves. He then goes on to detail the virgins as they appeared in the 37 edition and adds, this account Bilbo set down in his memoirs and he seems never to have altered it himself, not even after the Council of Elrond. Evidently, it still appeared in the original Red Book as it did in several of the copies and abstracts, but many copies contain the true account as an alternative. Quite brilliantly, in a, in a very simple move, but it's an astounding move, he explains a way why some readers in the real world are reading the 37 version and some in the 51, uh, which have different stories and different accounts of Gollum and Bilbo finding the ring, um, as Bilbo lying. In effect, he, the 1930s, he's, he's doing a lie because he doesn't want to tell the dwarves that he's stolen it or somehow got it by, um, let's say, less, less valorous means than you might think, which is quite ironic, really, because they hired him as a thief in the first place. But there you go. But the version they may have also read in 1951 was a truer account. And this, Tolkien says, is based on the changes that Frodo and Sam make to the story in Middle-earth when they finally get to the bottom of how the ring was discovered and how Bilbo gets it in the first place. Um, and they altered it because it had weighed on Bilbo's conscience. But to conclude, and I realise I am running out of time, this is only meant to be half an hour, the story doesn't quite end there, either in the real world or in Middle-earth. Um, in 1960, what Raycliffe calls the uh, fifth phase of the writing of The Hobbit, Tolkien then began to rewrite the entire novel as if it was in the style of The Lord of the Rings. Um, he got about, I think it was chapter three he gets to. Um, but you can see some of the drafts if you want, you can go and read them. And basically what he's doing there is really removing this sort of childish tone which he and his children, his children at the time, but he in retrospect found quite offensive. Um, some of those changes found their way into the Ballantine Books edition in 1966, and not all of them, but some of them did. So, in effect, you can go out and buy three copies of The Hobbit, and they're all different. I have to say that if you read the rewrite that he did in 1960, it's not The Hobbit, and it just is dry and doesn't have the appeal of the story. But that's the real world. What of Middle-earth? Uh, and how the story of The Hobbit survived there? Uh, and this may sound an odd question, after all, Middle-earth isn't real, is it? Um, but nevertheless, as a final mark of genius, I will offer you the history that Tolkien then gave to the story um, within his own mythology. The main manuscripts, or manuscript mentioned in The Lord of the Rings, which I've already referred to, which contains the, um, the entire Hobbit saga, is called the Red Book of Westmarsh. Um, and Tolkien here is playing a little in-joke, if you didn't know, to other medievalists, which he was quite common to do, or it was quite common for him to do. In Middle-earth, it gains the name from the fact that the library at Undertowers was home to the Fairburns, the Wardens of Westmarch, and it was contained in a red case, hence the red book. Um, but the title given to the manuscript also delivers a little nod to a real manuscript in the real world of the late 14th century, the Red Book of Hergest, which contains the great Welsh myth, uh, the Mabinogian and possibly also maybe a real sort of back sort of glance to Andrew Lang's uh, fairy tale books, particularly the Red Book, of course, which he read as a child. Bilbo presents the original manuscript and variants to Frodo, and it is Frodo and Sam who conclude the final entries and complete the record of the whole saga, and in the course of events, as I've said, tidy up the anomalies over Gollum and the Ring, etc. However, Tolkien doesn't stop there. No, of course he doesn't. We then get a full history of the manuscript, 
We're told, as we've already said, the origin, the core text, as we might call it in, in, uh, in codicology and, and paleography, was Bilbo's private diary. But this was then expanded to three volumes. Um, and although the original no longer exists, and I have to remind you here, it never existed. This is fiction. But anyway, Tolkien's telling us the original manuscript no longer exists. Copies of it do, and we're given, and we're even given the names of the scribes who then made the copies of the manuscript of the Red Book of Westmarch, etc., etc., and the dates in Middle Earth uh, chronology. Uh, we're told that some versions were so important they even had their own name, such as the Thane's Book. And later scribes annotated the pages, added extra stories, and so on, even omitted material. So, in Middle Earth, there's variants even again of of the Hobbit lur lurking out there. And even in the collection of poems which are published in the real world as the adventures of Tom Bombadil, Tolkien noted at the beginning that the verses in the Red Book are found in loose leaves written in the margins and blank spaces. So he's publishing a book of his poetry which he says are marginalia in a manuscript in a fictional world. We're also told that the manuscripts were held in libraries in Gondor and the Shire and as happened in the real world with medieval manuscripts, were collected by antiquarians such as Pippin. Now you may now be wondering, I think I am, uh, what is real and what isn't? Um, because I've told you two stories here, how The Hobbit was written by Professor Tolkien, published and rewritten um, in the real world, but also how it was written down originally by Bilbo and then Frodo and Sam and its survival in Middle-earth. And your mind may be spinning back and forth from the 1930s Oxford to Middle-earth and you may even find yourself having to catch yourself and be reminded that Middle-earth isn't real. But that's the whole point. You're beginning to experience or glimpse what Tolkien called secondary belief, a feeling that somehow, somewhere, at some time, the stories he'd written down actually existed. I'm not saying he believed that, but this is the idea he wants to get in your head. And it's all intentional. So don't be worried, you haven't taken on too much pipe weed, but I would suggest that this, this way of writing and this effect that it has on readers is yet again another mark of genius, and I hope it demonstrates why I believe the dust jacket in there warrants its place in such an exhibition. Thank you very much. Thank you.